Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. I hope you've had a fantastic week. I hope that your weekend has been stellar and spectacular, and we are glad that you are here with us on Sunday morning or whenever you are listening. Uh, audio versions are available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You just have to search Faith on Hill. And we know most people who listen to the audio version are not listening on Sunday morning, so wherever you are at, whenever you are listening, you are welcomed here. We also have video versions. We have a live stream available at 10.30 a.m. on our uh, website, faithonhill.com. And a video live stream also goes to our Facebook page, and it's always available there on our Facebook page. If you have any questions about things going on, you can always email me, adam at faithonhill.com. We're always taking donations for the Wichita Family Center. And so uh, if you can message me uh, and say, hey, I'd like to drop some stuff off, and you are more than welcome to do that. Uh, small groups are happening. We have small groups happening. Uh, the young adults groups Tuesday nights. Youth group happens Tuesday nights. We have a small group on Sunday morning before church. And we have a small group on Zoom online on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. And you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information. Uh, last of all, we view this as a legitimate church service. And we know that people uh, watch online for a lot of different reasons. Maybe they're not feeling well. Maybe they're traveling and out of town. Uh, or, or maybe they just don't feel uh, able to come in person. And that's totally fine. The key is to be connected. And so if you are coming regularly and you consider this your church, uh, we'd love to be connected with you. Say hello in the comments. Um, just, you know, maybe be part of the small group on, on Wednesday nights. This is an invitation uh, to be actively part of our church, even if your, your main Sunday uh, participation is in our online service. Uh, finally, uh, we will be in the book of Joel today as we continue our study through the 10 least read books of the Bible. And so if you have a Bible, you can open to the book of Joel chapter 1. We are doing not a study of the book of Joel, if, if we were going to just do that, and I'm sure we will at some point, we would probably spend a month at least going through the book, but we're going through the 10 least read books of the Bible, and so we're getting more of an overview picture of this book. Joel is a mysterious prophet. All we are told is that he is the son of Pethuel. We can know from context, he mentions Judah and Jerusalem repeatedly. So he was likely writing in the southern kingdom. We don't know when he wrote. Did he write after the Babylonian captivity? Did he write before? Did he write early in the days of the prophets or did he write later? We're not sure. But what we can get from his writings is a guide to understanding. There are so many things that are throughout the rest of the scripture that Joel touches on that I believe are informative. Also, I think it's interesting to note, you may have picked up because there are parts of the book that flow in a poetic way in English. But as I understand it from people who are far more knowledgeable in ancient Hebrew than I am, in ancient Hebrew, this would have been considered a poetic book. It's not that it's poetry to not be taken seriously. It, it's prophecy. But he was using the written word as a, as a way of conveying his message. 
Uh, to me, it's kind of like the difference between somebody conveying the gospel in a sermon versus a play or a song. Somebody speaking the word of God versus somebody writing the word of God. There's a difference, but it's the same message. Now, here are the, some of the things that I think that Joel gives us an insight to understanding that affects how we read the rest of the scripture. The first is this. We're given a guide to understanding Israel. Israel is not a nation as much as it is a people. The people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those who are part of the covenant that God established through Moses between himself and his people. Israel is also a land, the promised land, the land of Israel. It's a geographic spot, a geographic idea. The land of Israel is right there on the eastern Mediterranean shore. Israel is God's land. Israel is God's people. How do we know this? Well, in chapter 2, verse 18, Joel writes, Then the Lord was jealous for his land. And then in chapter 3, verse 17, Joel says, Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, which is Jerusalem. And he says, it is my holy hill. He's possessing it. The land of Israel is God's land. And the people of Israel are his people. Why is that important? There are two big mistakes or pitfalls that Christians get into when we read, especially the Old Testament, and we try to figure out, hey, what does this mean for my life? One is that we project ourselves as non, most of us are non-Jewish, non-Jewish believers in Jesus who are part of the new covenant of grace. And we try to project ourselves into a ancient Jewish culture under the old covenant, the law of Moses. The other thing that happens, some Christians try to, instead of projecting themselves into the story, they try to divorce themselves from the story. Uh, this is often what's called replacement theology, the idea that the church has totally replaced Israel in God's economy of, of how he organizes the world. And so every verse that talks about Israel in the Old Testament, we can just take and say that no longer is about the Jewish people or the land of Israel. And it's now totally about us. And if you take either of those points of view, you can get off onto all kinds of bad teaching and practice. And throughout the, the last couple centuries, you know, the last centuries and the last couple thousand years, the history of the church, there have been horror, horrible practice and terrible theology that has been built around either projecting ourselves into a group that we aren't, or to totally divorce ourselves from them. You can go read this on your own time, but 
Romans chapter 11 deals heavily with this idea. How, how is the church supposed to see the people of Israel? And this was a big question in the early church, especially as the original Christians were all Jewish. 100%. You read the book of Acts, and every Christian that you read about, even if they have a Greek-sounding name, like Stephen or Paul, every Christian you read about in the first eight chapters are Jewish believers. And then God calls Peter to go preach the gospel to a guy named Cornelius and everybody that lived in his house. Cornelius was the first non-Jewish believer in Jesus. And increasingly, as the gospel spread out, because there are more non-Jewish people, Gentiles, than there are Jewish people, that's just law of averages, as the gospel went out all over the world, Parthians in the north and Romans to the west and Persians and people in what we would now call India to the east. The gospel spread everywhere. And so then the question becomes, hey, our scripture is based off of this, the, these people, the Jews, but how do we relate to them? And Romans chapter 11 talks about this, how God is not done with his people All of the promises that he made to his people Israel are still applicable. But he has grafted in the church the way that you can graft one plant onto another. So we are connected to them. And at the same time, we are a separate entity. Romans 11, Paul says that God's using the church to provoke his people to jealousy, to get them to wake up. And and that at some point, when they accept Jesus as their Messiah, that this use of the church will be part of that. Do I fully understand how that works? No, I do not. But I know that that's what the scripture tells us. So if I want to understand how to approach Israel in the Bible, and I'm just going to spoiler alert this, Israel, both the land and the people, they figure pretty big in the Bible. It's, I can't project myself into them, nor can I divorce myself from them. Israel is God's land, Israel is God's people. And in Joel's day, the people of Israel and the land of Israel were both suffering. There was the effects of sin and they were suffering for it. The land was suffering. Because Israel had sinned, God was not protecting them from their enemies. And so the land was suffering the effects of warfare. There is also implication, and we know this from the writings of the prophet Jeremiah, among other prophets, that Israel had not been following God's law. And part of God's law was an agricultural law. Israel, do this when it comes to how you sow the fields and how you collect your crops and let the land rest, and they never did that. So they have been over-farming, over-cultivating, and so the land is not bearing fruit. The crop yields are bad. There, there is all... All of these things together seem connected. There's a natural suffering. There's not enough food. Um, There is a moral suffering. Joel talks repeatedly about people who are given to substance abuse. Uh, He talks about brokenness. He talks about human trafficking. He talks about violence. There, There is a moral suffering that is happening in the land of Israel because they have not been following God's law. And then finally... There is a cultural suffering. The, he talks several times about the uh, 
grain and the wine offerings not happening in the temple. And the reason they're not happening is because there's no grain or wine to use. There's nothing, there's nothing to spare. And because of their sin and the natural consequences of their sin, it was affecting their culture and their expressions of worship and these things that they were supposed to do. People talk about victimless crimes or, you know, yes, that's a sin, but it doesn't affect anybody else. I don't really believe that. I don't think that is true. Substance abuse is directly linked to violence and domestic abuse. We know that human trafficking is directly linked to adult entertainment. We know that where there is increased uh, rebellion, that, that violence increases. It's not surprising that, that we have increased strife and anger, and then we see increased gun violence and, and all of these things that are happening, the riots and all of these things that are going on in our culture. We can see the same thing. Now, again, I'm not trying to project us and say that America is Israel in Joel's time, but I'm saying, hey, I can recognize some similarities. I can look around my world and see how sin causes natural suffering. You know, somebody, the, the fires we had in southern Oregon last year. Arson started those fires south of Medford. Somebody sinned and it affected the natural world. And then there's moral sin and we can look around and we can see from, from substance abuse to sexual immorality to racism, we can see moral sin causing suffering in our world and that leads to cultural suffering and because of all of these things are linked, they're not separated. So what's the answer? Well, here's the thing. When I look back at Israel, I see that Israel proves that there is no salvation from the law. If you try to keep all of the rules, because you could look at this and say, well, that's just what we need to get to. We need to get to a, a better moral standing as Americans. America can look at Israel and say, hey, if anyone can prove that there is no salvation in following rules, there's no salvation in keeping the law, there's no salvation in moralism, it's Israel. Because they had all of the advantages, way more than God's given any people. God entered a covenant with them. And it didn't work. And Jesus he said, hey, I, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. You guys couldn't fulfill it, so I'm fulfilling it for you. We'll get to that in a minute. Joel's writings give us some understanding for Israel. Hey, Israel is God's people, and that's still the case. Israel is God's land, and that's still the case. Does that mean that I am 100% pro-Israel on everything, and I don't think that there's like major issues with, with the Palestinians and how uh, Gaza is being handled, all that. Yes, it's totally true. But at the same time, I can look and say, hey, they're God's people and that's God's land. And that has implications. It gives, part of those implications is the next understanding Joel gives us, which is an understanding of prophecy. I don't know if you've noticed this reading the Bible, but there's a lot of prophecy in the Bible. And it's not just the Old Testament or it's not just the book of the Revelation. We're going to start studying Matthew here in a month or so. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about prophecy quite a bit. 
Joel gives us some understanding about how prophecy works in the Bible. In Joel chapter 2, verse 28, we actually read something that might be familiar to you from the book of Acts. In verse 28, it says, And afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Peter In Acts chapter 2, the very first uh, evangelistic sermon that we have any record of, he quotes the prophet Joel from those verses. When when the Holy Spirit descends and and this huge crowd of thousands of people gather and, and they say, what are you guys doing? What is happening here? And Peter says, hey, it's just like the prophet Joel wrote about. And he begins to to preach to them about how what was happening with the Holy Spirit descending on the church was fulfilling prophecy. And then he preached the gospel. But you know what? He didn't read the whole, the whole prophecy because it goes on to say, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming great and dreadful day of the Lord. Peter didn't mention that part. And when you read Acts chapter 2, or anywhere in the book of Acts, I don't see anything about billows of smoke and darkness and the moon turned to blood. I don't see that anywhere in the book of Acts. What Joel's informing us about is this idea of prophecy is literal, except where it's obviously figurative. I mean, there's multiple places where Joel is describing uh, this army coming, and he's like, it's, it's like this. They, they, they're, they're like chariots. They have a sound like chariots, but he doesn't say it is chariots. So it's literal, except where it's obviously figurative, and it's literal, but it's not always linear. What I mean by that is this. Jesus came and will come again. There are prophecies all throughout the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah, and some of them deal with Jesus coming as the suffering servant. That's his first coming suffering at the hands of sinful man, dying on the cross for our sins. And some of the prophecies deal with his second coming. And all the prophecies in the New Testament deal with his second coming. That Jesus will come back physically, in person, and he will end the rebellion and he will set things right and establish his everlasting kingdom. Joel touches on both of those events. Joel talks about this, how the Lord will bring them into this valley of Jehoshaphat and will judge the nations. And his kingdom will have no end and Jerusalem will never again be invaded. So prophecy is literal. I believe that this will literally happen. That that in this valley, God will judge the nations. But it's not always linear. It doesn't always fit, you know, the Holy Spirit being poured out is, is connected to the first coming of Jesus. And the second part of that prophecy seems connected to the second coming of Jesus. So what I look for when it comes to prophecy, again, is I take it literal, where it's, unless it's obviously figurative, and I understand that it's literal, but it might not always be linear. So I look for big ideas, general principles, and then I, I don't, I'm not interested in arguing about the rest. 
And people have different opinions about different parts of the book of the Revelation or Bible prophecy or whatever. And I'm not interested in arguing those things because I'm here to preach Jesus, not Bible prophecy. But there's a lot of prophecy in the Bible, and Joel gives us insight into understanding it. And finally, remember I said I'm here to preach Jesus. Joel gives us insight into salvation, God's judgment, and God's grace. Here's what I mean. In Joel chapter 1, verse 14, and again in verse 19, Joel talks about repentance. Chapter 14, or sorry, chapter 1, verse 14. There's, there's no chapter 14. Chapter 1, verse 14, he says, Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, the, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. And then he says in verse 19, To you, O Lord, I call. Because what he is saying is, Repentance is collective and personal. And depending on what kind of culture you're in, you're going to have an easier time with one or the other. Joel's culture, and and honestly the majority of cultures in human existence, have been more collectivist. The, The collective is always held above the individual. The family is always held above the individual. The person is honored who does what is best for the family or the collective or the, or the group, the tribe. In our culture, in Western culture, modern culture, the individual is valued. Look at our, all of our stories, right? Like uh, my wife and I joke about this, but every Disney story, the, it's, it's funny, if you go watch a Disney movie, Pixar movie, whatever, from the last 20 years, it's the same basic formula. They go to some culture, right? And then everybody says, oh, look how multicultural Disney's being. And there's a, you know, the, uh, we really uh, loved Rhea and the Last Dragon. And that's, you know, Thai, uh, Southeast Asian culture. And, you know, then there's like, you know, Pocahontas or um, Emperor's New Groove or, you know, uh, so on and so on. Like they go to different cultures and that's supposed to be so. But what's the basic plot? The individual leaves their family, does what is best for them, and then eventually their family says, oh, you did the right thing. Mulan, it's, you know, on and on and on, right? That's a very Western and modern idea. These these cultures, most cultures outside of our kind of modern context, valued the collective over the individual. I'm not saying that's universally true, but it's been true more often than it's been not. So Joel's culture would not have had a problem with an idea of a collective repentance. Hey, we all need to get together and we will collectively repent. Their challenge was often individual repentance. The group is repenting. The family is repenting. I need to repent. And this still happens in our day, by the way, where a family will come to faith. Mom and dad will become followers of Jesus. The kids still have to make their own choice. You know, the, if, if the, the family collective is church going, you know, mom and dad, adult children, cousins, whatever, everyone still has to make their own choice, even if collectively the family follows Jesus. And at the same time, in our modern culture, We emphasize individual repentance. I need to repent. I need to give my heart to Jesus. I need to come before God. And that's true. 
Nobody else can come to God before, but, but you. Like you, Nobody else can do it for you. But when we're saved, when we become Christians, when we enter the family of God, we enter the family of God. We become part of this big collective of people. And what will happen is we won't want to take responsibility together and say, hey, together we need to come before God. It's a challenge right now. We're, we're really, I, I really think one of the big struggles in, in our culture is this idea of collective repentance. Right now, there, there is part of our cultures, the, the minority communities are saying to the majority white community, we're just asking you to repent of, of collective sin, racism. And, and, the, and white folks will say, hey, well, I, I haven't done anything to you. I haven't, I haven't burned a cross on anyone's yard. I've never treated somebody differently because of the color of their skin. But collectively, we have. Right now, collectively, the millennial generation and younger are saying to baby boomers, older Gen X, hey, what are you leaving us? And really interesting uh, piece I heard on OPB a while back where they, they got this panel of, of people in their 20s and 30s and they, they basically gave their responses to a bunch of questions and then they presented those responses to a group of people in their 50s and 60s and, and a lot of them said, yeah, we agree with what you're saying, but that's not our fault because we don't want to take collective responsibility. That collectively we all have to interact with each other and before God. So repentance is both collective and personal. Repentance is internal first and then external. Why do I say that? Because in chapter 2, verse 13, Joel says, rend your hearts and not your garments. We've talked about this before. You may have seen it in here where it says put on sackcloth. And last week when we studied Joel the last, or not Joel, Jonah, the last couple weeks, Nineveh, when they repented, they put on sackcloth. These were these mourning garments. And it was very common if you were in deep grief, if you have just lost somebody close to you, that you would take your shirt and rip it, tear your clothes, cover yourselves in dirt. This is incredibly common. There are still places in the world where that is the common expression of grief, of mourning, of sorrow, and repentance. And what God says to the people through the prophet Joel is stop doing that. Because they were externally repenting. They were going through the motions of church. I show up to church. I take communion. I do all the things I'm supposed to do. I say all the right things. I don't disagree with the group think. Nobody can see on the inside whether I'm actually repentant or not. Nobody can see on the inside what's really going on. And God's calling them. He says, hey, don't just do the outward thing. Do the internal, the, the inward thing. Repent in your heart first and then do the external stuff. But start with the inward stuff. And then he says, repent while there is still time. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says, even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Why? Because there is this coming judgment. In the verses before, he says, The great and coming day of the Lord is near. Who can endure it? 
The day of the Lord is this concept all throughout the writings of the Old Testament prophets, speaking of the, the final judgment of God on the world. And, and he's saying, repent while there's still time. Repent while there's still time. No one knows. No one knows when their last breath will be. And I don't say this to scare you. Oh, you don't know what's going to happen, so you better get right with God right now. I'm saying this is a reality. No one knows when their last moment will be. And if we are walking outside of God's ways, then be warned. Repent while there's still time. And this has way bigger implications than just uh, saying a prayer or something. There may not be time. Uh, not just death. I've known people who I believe it's very possible. I'm not saying for 100% fact it's a locked thing, but I think it's very possible that there are people who are so far gone in their substance abuse, in their bitterness, in their resentment, that their hearts have become so hard that they've given themselves so fully over to their sin that they may live another 20 years, but the time to repent seems to have passed them by. It's possible that you won't be able to repent and, and, and escape without suffering. Maybe you, you have repentance. You know, Samson in the last days of his life, if you remember that story from the book of Judges, in the last days of his life, he repented. But he didn't live long, and he lived in misery that was caused by his sin. His eyes had been gouged out, and he lived in chained. And, and, and there's many people who repent in their last moments, and yet that doesn't erase the years of misery. Repent while you still can. Joel, speaking of salvation, says salvation is here, but you got to repent. you got to turn from your sins. Because judgment is coming. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations. I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people. They traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. Americans, specifically Westerners in general, have a hard time with the idea of the judgment or the justice of God. And, and I've spoken of this before, but I think it's something worth repeating over and over again. The reason that we have a hard time with it is honestly partly because we live relatively easy lives. And you may say, what do you mean, Adam? You don't know what I've gone through. That's true. But... Compared to the rest of the world, in general, Americans live very easy lives. If you grew up in a war-torn country, if you grew up, I mean, as corrupt as America is, and it's corrupt, like we aren't as corrupt as other places. If you grew up in, in a land of corruption, if you grew up in a land of oppression, if you grow up without the freedoms that we have, the idea that God would judge wickedness would be something that you would cry out for. Evil demands justice. God gives some examples. Hey, you guys 
divided my land. You sold my people into slavery. He speaks about uh, human trafficking. He, he speaks about um, prostitution. He speaks about um, child abuse. He speaks about all of these things. That evil has to be dealt with. And it's amazing. We, we actually, if I were just to list these things and say, do you want God to judge somebody for those things? I'd say, oh yeah. And we, we're okay with God judging other people, just not us or the people that we care about. And God's justice will not be challenged. He says in chapter 3, verse 4, the next verse, he says, what do you have against me, Tyre or Sidon? And Tyre and Sidon were these important uh, economic cities north of Israel. He says, and you, the regions of Philistia, the Philistines, the enemies of, of God's people, you know, they were coming against God and his people. And he says, do you think you, I've done something bad to you? Or are you trying to pay me back? He says, I'm going to repay. And, and the answer is, in the day of judgment, they will not say it's unfair. No one in the day of judgment will say, God, how could you do this thing? God's judgment and his justice will be true and it will be righteous. Repent while there's still time. And the last thing that Joel really gives us a little bit of a glimpse of understanding is the grace of God. Salvation comes with repentance and God's judgment is needed and it is right. But the grace of God is there. What does it say at the end of the book of Joel? Verse 17 of chapter 3, Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy and never again will foreigners invade her. In that day the mountains will drip new wine, the hills will flow with milk, the ravines of Judah will run with water, a fountain will flow out of the house of the Lord and will water the valley of Acacias. What did Israel do to deserve any of that? They rejected their Messiah. They, they crucified him. Now, I want to be careful with that statement because I know that there's, that's a loaded statement. And I, I will be the first to claim that my sins put Jesus on the cross too. So don't hear what I'm not saying. But if you were just to look at Israel and you say, well, what, is, what has Israel done to deserve all of this favor from God? They don't. Grace is undeserved, unmerited favor. You don't get it because you've earned it. You get it because God gives it. We don't deserve God's grace either. I mean, look at how God talks about those who have mistreated his people and then look back on the history of non-Jewish people towards the Jews. Not just Hitler. It's easy to say, oh, it was just the Nazis. Go and read the history. The pogroms in Eastern Europe. The the you know, we showed our boys Fiddler on the Roof this week, you know, the, the, the way that, that Jews from Russia and Africa and even in America have been discriminated against, oppressed, abused. Anti-Semitism is once again on the rise, not just in uh, places like Russia or in the Middle East, it's on the rise in France. It's on the rise in America. We don't deserve God's grace either, and yet he gives it. It's for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son 
that whoever would believe in Jesus will not die, but will have everlasting life. I'm going to say that again. For God so loved the world, the world that rejects him, the world that denies him, the world that hears what he says and says we're going to do the opposite. God loves the world. And any person who believes in their heart and declares with their mouth that Jesus is Lord will not die, but will have everlasting life. You see, God's plan is to restore Israel and fulfill all of the promises that have yet to be fulfilled for the land of Israel and the people of Israel. But you can read the book of the Revelation. And there, among them, in that new Jerusalem that God will establish, will be people of every tribe and tongue and nation, those who have called on the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Do I deserve that? Do you deserve that? Do we deserve that? No. But Jesus has made the way of salvation for all who would believe. So when I look at the world around me, I go, hey, I can have some understanding from the book of Joel. I can, I can understand that God has a plan and he will bring it to fruition. I can understand that God has given us glimpses of that plan so I don't need to worry or have fear in my heart. I can know that in the end, God wins. And I also know that whether it's collectively or individually, all people need to repent of their sins. Declare Jesus and follow him. And that's the invitation to us this morning. Wherever you are at, whether you're listening in the morning or the evening, whether you're on an audio podcast or you're watching me on video, wherever you are at, the invitation is to repent of our sins and to follow Jesus Here's what I know. At the end of the book, verse 17 of chapter 3, he says, Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, and I dwell in Zion, my holy hill, and Jerusalem will be holy. But then he says, in the next verse, in that day, he describes the mountains dripping with new wine and the, the, the waters flowing, but then he says in verse 19, But Egypt will be desolate. Edom, which was a land to the east of Israel, will become a desert waste because of the violence done to the people of Judah. In whose land they shed innocent blood, Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem through all generations. But shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. There is a choice that we have. We can walk in the holiness of God through his power or we can live in the land of desolation. Lord, help us to live on the holy hill and not in the desolate wasteland. Let's pray together. Well, as we have heard this invitation from God, it's up to us to respond. If you do not feel that you have an assurance of salvation, if you don't know whether you have faith in Jesus that is saving and real and lasting, then that invitation to repentance and faith is there for you. And I'd invite you to pray with me. God, I believe. Help my unbelief. I know that I have sinned against you. I have done wrong. I have done wickedness in your sight. Forgive my sins. And wherever you're at, maybe you have specific sins you need to pray for because they're like the root causes of sin in your life. And maybe it's just a general thing. Lord, I just know that I am unclean and I need you to make me clean. Jesus, fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I could have the power to live in your victory and I can have faith to know that you have saved me.
And I ask and I pray and I believe these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer, I'd invite you to tell anyone and everyone and get a hold of me, Adam, at faithonhill.com. I'd love to connect with you and encourage you in your faith. If you are already a believer, but you know that you've been living in that desolate land, then the prayer is a little bit different, but it's the same idea. Lord, make my life holy just like you will make Jerusalem holy. Make my life your holy hill. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me victory over sin and make your love full and abiding in my life. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. And if you, you know, the Bible says if we confess our sins one to another, that God is faithful to forgive us. If you need to reach out and connect with somebody and say, hey, this is where I've been and I just need to confess, one of our core tenets is that Faith on Hill, we're a fun place, we're a safe place, and we're a Jesus place. And part of being a safe place is that you can reach out without fear of judgment and you can reach out knowing that, hey, you're not going to get gossiped about and you'll be welcomed in. Again, my email is adam at faithonhill.com. And, and, and however you've responded to God, I want you to know that God has heard your prayer and that Jesus loves you and the Holy Spirit of God is working in your life as we allow him. We'll see you next Sunday at 10.30 a.m.